Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's a great pleasure to be with you, as always, Saturday morning. And by the way, you can live stream us on the Internet, LarryKudlowShow.com. LarryKudlowShow.com. You hear us all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system. Everybody will hear us. Anyway, the lead story today is, unfortunately, the continued increase of inflation, peak inflation. Well, it hasn't peaked yet. It's still peaking. Each month there's a new peak, I suppose. Gasoline prices, according to AAA, hit $5 a gallon across the country. It's a little higher in uh, here in the Northeast, a heck of a lot higher out west in California. $5. How about that? But everything's fine, according to President Biden. He's just still playing the blame game. You know, this inflation tax, I mean, well, let's put some facts on the scoreboard. Inflation was up 1% in May. That's above 12% at an annualized rate. Okay, so think of it that way. And over the past three months, it's up almost 11%. And over the past year, 86 so right there's a bad trend. I'll just note this for you. I don't want to be too statistical, but still, these numbers matter. You know, when the one month is above the three month and the three month is above the 12 month, that's a very bad trend line and suggests that the story is getting worse as it is, in fact, getting worse. And um, also, the so-called core inflation rate, take out food and energy. Of course, people buy food and energy. They're getting killed at the pump. They're getting killed at the grocery store. I understand that. But some economists will look at this as the so-called underlying inflation rate. I, I don't, but some do. Anyway, it too was up. It was up six-tenths in May. That's uh, well over 7% on an annual basis. And the three-month rate was 6.3, and the 12-month rate was 6.0. So my point here is simply it's the same pattern. The one month is higher than the three month and the three month is higher than the 12 months and it tells you the trend for inflation remains higher. Wall Street talks about peak inflation and hopes for some kind of early decline. Ain't happening and it ain't gonna happen. I mean, the lagged impact of all that federal spending and borrowing and Federal Reserve money printing, that lagged impact is still going on. And it's, frankly, probably going to go on for a couple more years. And that assumes we don't spend any more. And that assumes we don't print any more money. We'll talk about the Fed and fiscal policy. We have former Senator Phil Graham coming at the bottom of the hour. Nobody smarter than he is about this stuff. Nobody. Anyway, it's, um, it's a tax on the workforce, right? So... Real worker wages. I mean, the wages are doing good. They're up 6%. The workforce, most people are coming back to work. 
Joe Biden brags about how this is a great employment recovery. It's not recovering. They're just coming back to work from the pandemic. We're still a million jobs short of the pre-pandemic. Uh, and, um, but in any event, a 6% increase in wages is being blown up by the 9% close, 8.5% increase in inflation. So, you know, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics that publishes the CPI and the jobs and the wages, real worker wages are falling down minus 3% year on year. So you're working harder and you're getting more more pay, but unfortunately because of the inflation, the pay is worth less. We've essentially had a near 9% devaluation of your money in your wallets and your pocketbooks and your wages. It's the same story if you look at it on average weekly earnings, real average weekly earnings minus 3.9%, almost minus 4%. So you got your gasoline prices at 5%. Your CPI is almost 9 and it's increasing. Your wages are going up, but it's worth less. Wages minus 3%. So peak inflation is not peaking. I guess that's the message. You know, $5 gasoline, let's see, it was $3.08 a year ago. It was $2.40 when Joe Biden was inaugurated. When we had the energy independence of the Trump policies, which deregulated all manner of fossil fuels, I guess gasoline prices were running about two, two and a quarter for the most part. The inflation rate was under two during those days. Hate to say it, but that's a true factoid. And of course, President Biden just blames, he blames big oil, he blames Exxon, he blames drug companies, he blames food companies, he blames uh, poultry companies, he blames Russia. He blames Vladimir Putin. It's all their fault, right? That's it. It's all their fault. His um, director of National Economic Council, the position that I held under Trump, but his NEC director says, if you really isolate what's going on here, the problem is Vladimir Putin decided to take on his irresponsible war. It just ain't so. I mean, the inflation started well before we were thinking about Putin, inflation started almost from day one. And actually, some people note the oil price rise started right after the election because of Biden's woke climate policies, the so-called existential threat, which is utter nonsense. We should have an all of the above. We should be, you know, I'm fine with renewables, especially nuclear, which is my favorite renewable. Of course, that's the one the greenies hate the most. But I'm also fine with natural gas, which is a clean-burning fuel. It will be the savior for both the climate and our energy. Fracking, pipelining has all been put on hold. You know, you can blame big oil, but look at this stuff. Take out, as I said earlier, if you took out energy and food, I, I don't want to do that because that's what, you know, ordinary folks, typical families, that's what they need, energy and food. But if you just took that out, you still have uh, 7% plus inflation in May, 
and six and a half percent inflation rate. That's if you took it out. And that, by the way, that core inflation rate, as it is called, is um, almost twice what Europe has. So this idea that, oh, everybody in the world has the same inflation is just not true. Europe does have high inflation, but that's because they're dependent on oil from Russia and and gas from Russia. Okay, I get that. They're much, much, much more dependent on it than we are. But again, if you look at core, which is the underlying inflation story, ours is twice what theirs is. Why? Well, we had almost twice as much fiscal stimulus, government spending, as the Europeans did, or the OECD, uh, you know, developed big countries did. Study from the San Francisco Fed shows that. Actually, um, a former Obama and uh, Clinton economist, Jason Furman, who's an honest guy, he wrote a good piece in the Wall Street Journal about this, showing how we applied much more demand stimulus than Europe did. Consequently, our underlying inflation rate is almost twice theirs. By the way, our wages are almost twice theirs. So it isn't around the world. Uncle Joe, it was your mistake. Uh... 15 months ago, we shouldn't have had the $2 trillion because Donald Trump gave you a strong economy. We did not need $2 trillion in additional stimulus. Trump handed you a 6.5% growth economy with plunging unemployment. People were going back to work. You didn't need the stimulus. What you did was you handed it out to the Green New Deal, to all these Democratic constituents groups. There was massive widespread fraud Unemployment benefits, which you continued, provided a reason for people not to work. Workfare was abandoned. All these welfare programs were put back into place with no workfare, so people stayed out of work. But they had money in their pockets, and they went out and bought all manner of goods and services, and that there was the rise of the inflation rate. We borrowed, the U.S. borrowed to finance it. There was no pay-fors, never pay-fors. And the Federal Reserve bought the bonds issued by Uncle Sam's Treasury. And that exploded the money supply, and that exploded the inflation rate. Now, this story is not going to end well. We will talk about that some more over the course of the show. It is not going to end well. But let me just say this. To the idea that it's all Vladimir Putin's fault or it's big oil's fault, You know, you can go down the list here. Shelter, housing, uh, growing 7% last three months. Services, okay, services, growing 9% last three months, up almost 10% for the month of May. Take out the energy component of services, and you're still left with 8% inflation. Apparel is rising. Cars, used cars are rising again. New cars are rising. It's widespread. It's all across the board. You can't pin it on Vladimir Putin. We're going to talk, by the way, to former uh, head scientist at the Energy Department, Paul Dabar, because I think, you know, the the world oil price is very high. It's $120. under Trump, it was running about $50, $55. But putting that aside, that price hasn't moved in several months now. 
So that argument, you know, the Putin argument is not really, I, I want to talk to Paul Dabar, it'll be later in the show. He was the uh, top scientist in the energy department. Uh, there's a shortage of gasoline. There's a shortage of refining. And we're seeing a lot of energy shortages. There's a shortage of food because of the energy shortages. I think that's a function of the fact that Joe Biden has stopped oil and gas production, hasn't he? I think that's really what's going on. Energy shortages are popping up. We are undersupplied. And that is driving up gasoline prices and uh, utility prices and electricity prices and diesel prices. Our truckers are getting clobbered because of diesel. Three-quarters of the goods in the United States flow are transported by trucks. Trucks are getting smashed by the high price of diesel. There's a better way to do this, and I'm going to come back and give you my little Cudlow plan. There's a much better way to do this. We do not. There's going to be a, a bad recession coming. This, we could, this could be avoided. It could be avoided. All we need is supply-side policies, limited government. We don't need woke, progressive, big government socialism. Look what it has wrought in just a year and a half. Woke, progressive, big government socialism. Folks, I much prefer free market capitalism. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So, this story will not end well, this inflation story. I don't know if we're in recession right now. I don't think we're quite in recession. Uh, There's still strength. I mean, consumer spending, which is slowing, but it's still there. Uh, Business spending, business investment spending on equipment and machinery seems to still be there. Uh, Manufacturing production seems to still be there. But again, you know, the drop in real wages is very difficult and will damage consumers. Inventories look, I guess, pretty high among consumers if recent reports of Target and others uh, are correct. You look at the... um, you look at minus 1.5% GDP in the first quarter, and I noticed the GDP tracker from the Atlanta Fed is only 0.9, so barely above water. Uh, you know, that thing will, will change, but they're usually not far off. So I think inflationary recession is going to be the big topic, inflationary recession. Uh, some call it stagflation. Look at, I just want to put out here at the top of the show, there's a better way to do this. Honestly, I mean, you can have a new economic strategy. Instead of raising taxes and raising spending and uh, throwing a wet blanket over the fossil fuels industry and regulating businesses and attacking businesses the way Biden is doing, I mean, Janet Yellen, you know, this Janet Yellen, lately with her apology tour, what I call the hostage video, Janet Yellen was testifying before the House and Senate this week defending Biden's FY23 budget, which has Build Back Better still in it. That thing's worth at least $5 trillion of spending, according to the Congressional Budget Office. So they've learned nothing. 
Furthermore, they have $3.5 trillion in higher taxes on individuals and corporations and the foreign operations of corporations. You know, you tax production, you get less production, whatever it is you're producing, whether it's energy or manufacturing or, or anything, technology. So they're still spending and taxing. Typical woke budget. She's out there defending it. It's completely wrong. Here's what you need to do. First of all, you should make the Trump tax cuts permanent. That includes immediate expensing for machinery and equipment. And keep that uh, top corporate tax rate globally competitive at 21%. Leave it be. And we should be exploring additional pro-growth tax reform. The top income tax rate is still too high. 37% is too high. By the way, that's what small businesses pay. We should have a flatter tax with lower rates and simplification. That's point number one. Point number two, deregulate. Deregulate everything. Deregulate energy. Stop these crazy environmental restrictions and no permits. You can have a lease on oil, but you'll never get a permit to, to drill or frack or pipeline or even, for that matter, build roads and bridges and highways. Deregulate industry. Stop threatening the SEC, the FTC. The Federal Reserve, not only are they regulating business, they've got climate change regulations everywhere. They want to stop financing energy. Deregulate everything. Third, a domestic spending freeze. Domestic spending freeze. That is essential. And finally, fourth, defend the value of king dollar. Not only against other currencies, but defend the value against traditional inflation measures, such as broad commodity indexes. I mean, the Bloomberg and Goldman Sachs commodity indexes hit new highs. That is not good. Defend the value of the dollar. They're going to have to raise interest rates to do it. That's my plan. It's pro-growth. All right? Low tax rates, deregulate, freeze domestic spending, Defend King Dollar, the value of our money. If you do that, you'd be emulating what Reagan did, what John F. Kennedy did, what Trump did. Here's what would happen. If you put that kind of economic strategy in place and replace this crazy, woke, big government socialist strategy, put a supply-side free market strategy back in place, you will have skyrocketing growth and plunging inflation. You will have more goods chasing money. You will let people have entrepreneurship for a change. That's my plan. Put it all into a balanced budget plan and you'll have skyrocketing growth and collapsing inflation. I'm Kudlow. Senator Phil Graham coming up on the other side of the break. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. 
We're still talking about inflation and the economy, and we bring in the dear friend and mentor, former Senator Phil Graham of Texas. He's presently a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. And uh, first of all, Senator Graham, welcome. Appreciate it, as always. I want to read you a headline from the Washington Examiner. White House talks up historic economy (laughs) as inflation-weary voters doubt Biden. He says it's all okay, and he blames big oil companies and big drug companies and Vladimir Putin. What do you think? Is he on target? (laughs) Well, look, here's the big problem he has in that his policies produce the problem. Uh, There was no possibility that we were going to increase government spending by 50 percent last year and not have inflation. It it defied logic. Uh, uh, Democrat economists like uh, uh, Larry Summers came out as clearly as you can come out and say, if you do this, you're going to unleash an inflation uh, which is going to have a large negative impact on the economy. But their problem is not only did their policies cause the problem, but they desperately want to continue those policies. Mm. So what are you going to say? You, you're going to say, well, inflation is, is about to decline. It's temporary. I don't ever remember in the old days when I was working with President Reagan, I don't ever remember him predicting success. Uh, He understood that when you deliver success, the news is trumpeted. You don't have to talk about it. And the problem is when you keep saying that it's temporary and then the rate goes up, uh, it just creates, multiplies your problem. So, their difficulty is their policies cause the problem, so they don't feel they can admit that. And secondly, they desperately want to continue to spend, even if it makes the problem worse. You know, uh, Phil Grant, that's an important point, that last one. So Janet Yellen was up on the Hill last week. This didn't get much press coverage, and it should have. And she was up there defending uh, Biden's FY23 budget, which includes, Senator, includes Build Back Better, oh, recently, recently priced out by the CBO to be about $5 trillion in spending. It also includes $3.5 trillion of tax hikes, okay? Corporate tax hikes, individual tax hikes, wealthy tax hikes, and international tax hikes. So she's up there defending the very same woke policies that have put us in this fix in the first place. I think that's remarkable. Well, I tell you, I I try to be careful in that it's so tempting for people to say uh, things were better when I was there. But I I can say uh, with a totally clear conscience that I don't remember people saying things that were verifiably false um, in public policy debate, uh, even as late as 15, 10, 
20 years ago. Mm. Uh, the idea that people will stand up and look the country in the face and say things that are preposterous <laughs> uh, is just unnerving to me. Uh, it's totally new. I'm sure I said a lot of things that turned out to be wrong, but I didn't say things that I knew were wrong when I said them. <laughs> and uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of a level of discussion that's very discouraging for people that want to get serious about this thing. Inflation is easy to start. It's like a war. It's easy to start. It's very difficult to stop. And it's doing really a lot of damage to working people. You know, you walk in the grocery store, eggs are up 32%, chickens up 17%, milk's up 16%, a can of tomato soup is up 14%. Hmm. This is a broad-based inflation, and it's hurting a lot of people, and real wages have fallen more since uh, Joe Biden put his hand on the Bible <laughs> than they fell during the Great recession uh it's it's just extraordinary the pain that is being imposed and of course gas prices today are over five dollars the uh, bureau of labor statistics which of course publishes the job numbers it also publishes the cpi as you know so they also put out today phil or yesterday real hour real average hourly earnings minus three percent year on year Real average weekly earnings minus 3.9% year on year. So it's a killer for the workforce. Yeah, $20.25, a reduction in pay in terms of purchasing power. And look, I I live on, on the, out in the country, and when I go into town to go to the airport, I'm riding along with all these people in their pickups. And they live 30 or 40 miles from town. They run a little cattle herd to supplement their income. They drive in in their pickups to work. You can imagine when they're filling up their tank and it costs over $100 to fill that tank up, uh, that it's, this is affecting real people and it's affecting their lives. What do you think about this um so-called solution from the Bidens to uh, open up E15 ethanol gasoline. They believe that's going to uh, make gas gas cheaper and uh, is environmentally sound. I think it's exactly the reverse. But, you know, we had these battles with ethanol down through the years. And ethanol basically is made out of corn, and what's happened to corn prices? They're up. So you pay at the grocery store, not at the gas pump. Well, maybe that helps politically, but it doesn't help working families. And if you'll, if you've ever watched when they've got a gas with lower ethanol in it at a station, people will buy it. High ethanol creates problems for you if you're keeping a vehicle a long time. Um, so that's no solution. The solution is to take his foot off the neck of the oil and gas industry. I just don't understand how you can go to Venezuela and to the Middle East and beg those people to produce more 
and then you uh, you tell the oil and gas industry, look, we're going to put you out of business in eight years. So don't invest any money. Uh, it uh, and I think again the problem they've got is. They know they're being hurt by gas prices. All over Texas, there are these little stickers <clears throat> on gas pumps with a picture of Biden pointing <laughs> his finger to the gas price meter <laughs> saying, I did this. <laughs> and look, they know that's killing them. And it's all, oh, especially South Texas. And it's all over, and they know it's killing them, but why are they doing what they're doing? because they're more afraid of the environmentalists not supporting them politically than they are Joe and Sarah Brown, who are having a hard time making ends meet. That's the problem. So Rick Perry on the air says, instead of going to Venezuela, instead of going to the Middle East, he he wants a special... Envoy, a Biden special envoy to Midland, Texas. <laughs> Meet the oil and gas people. Declare a truce. <laughs> I mean, well, all he's got to, got to do is say, look, the country needs you to go back to work. We made a mistake here. Um, you do your job, and, and I'll try to do a better job myself that's all he's got to do they don't want anything except to be left alone Uh, there's so many people in business that all they want the government to do is leave them alone um but the problem is when you've got a political agenda um uh that's related to the environment in a period like this you just you're always working at cross purposes. Mm. Uh, you're all on inflation. Um, you know it cries out uh, that we should adopt a pot. When you got thirty six percent of the prime work age people and the bottom twenty percent of the income distribution in the country that are working. Uh, it cries out for a mandatory work requirement when you can't go into any place of business in this country and not see a, a help wanted sign. And when you go to a restaurant and they got three people trying to wait on 30 tables, um, it's a no brainer, but why aren't we doing it? Because it's counter to the political agenda of those that are in power. Now America's going to fix this. Uh, just like they did in 1980, but it's it's unnecessary pain, and it won't go away for quite a while. Senator Phil Graham, let's take a quick break. I want to talk to you about Federal Reserve policy, which is going to be the linchpin of the fight against inflation. Uh, we'll be right uh, back. Just uh, bear with us. Short break, folks. We're talking to uh, former Senator Phil Graham of Texas, now with the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Larry Kudlow. What's the Fed going to have to do to conquer inflation? And can we get out of this without a recession? Tough questions. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking to former Senator Phil Graham of Texas. 
now with the American Enterprise Institute, we're talking about the great inflation we are facing. Uh, Senator, um, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. The CPI yesterday, I think, ended any of these silly hopes that we'd already had peak inflation and it's going to come down easily. Uh, the Fed funds rate, the Fed's target rate, is uh, it's so far below inflation you can't even see it. And I think they're going to have to really work hard. I mean, 75 basis points, 100 basis points, and they're going to have to start pulling cash out of the economy from their portfolio. How difficult? What do you think they're going to have to do? M2 is still growing, I might add, although it has slowed down. So if you were running the Fed, what would you do about all this? Well, I'd say a prayer <laughs> No, look, Deep prayer and meditation. Job. They've got a tough job. I, I, think the, I think I'm correct in saying that we've never had uh, inflation above 4% and unemployment below 4% and not had a recession uh, to follow it. But that doesn't mean it has to happen. I think it's going to be tough. I think they're going to have to get interest rates up. Uh, And I think they need to be bold about it and do what they need to do. Uh, Congress and the president can help the Fed prevent a recession by stopping the spending, Mm. Uh, by implementing a mandatory work requirement for for people receiving welfare. We can increase supply by doing that. Um, I think the Fed is going to have a difficult job, and when interest rates go up, they're going to do all the things that interest rates, that rising rates tend to do. Uh, They're going to tend to have a negative effect on equity values, and uh, if if you've been following it, you're you're unhappy to know that um, another thing that has happened as this inflation has proven to be more persistent than uh, some had hoped is that equity values have plummeted, and as a result, the the value of all our retirement plans, four hundred one k's, annuities. Uh, and the cash value of life insurance uh, has declined pretty dramatically. And, of course, that affects people that are looking at retirement. And, Larry, another thing we could do to help the Fed is encourage people that are in good health, that are reaching retirement age, to keep working. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, let them work without having to pay their share of the Social Security tax up say, when they're 70, and then let them and their employer not have to pay it. And then at 75, they don't have to pay Medicare taxes. Hmm. I mean, they've already paid their share for these programs. And if we can keep older people in the labor market, I believe it helps the economy. They've got lots of skills. They don't have to be trained. And they'll be happier. I'm sorry, but I just don't think people are happy sitting on their front porch when they still got some get up and go left. Uh, and we need to help them get up and go if they want to do it. Now we shouldn't make them do it, but if they want to do it, 
We need to make it easy for them to do it. Look at us. Still working. Still kicking. Yeah, exactly. Well, can you imagine? I don't have, I have a lot of things I'd like to do, but just sit around and contemplate's not one of them. <laughs> you know, I'm old-fashioned like you are, Larry. Sort of the fact that you're working and doing something is sort of part of your identity, who you are. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, and so, um, uh, now I'm not saying, I, you know, some people like leisure, have good hobbies, don't want to work great. And they, they've worked a lifetime to be able to enjoy themselves. But I just have to believe there are millions of people out there, 65 to 70 to 75, that if you made it possible for them to keep working, um, they would do it so and be happy doing it. I agree totally. You know, that happiness part is really important, really, really important too. But so you're saying relax the payroll taxes so to provide yeah, an look, incentive if, for if people to keep working. If you get retirement age and you want to keep working, uh, let you not have then set it up so you don't have to continue to pay your share of social security tax. You've already mm-hmm. paid, you're eligible to retire. Mm-hmm. And then beyond 70, let the employer not have to pay it mm-hmm. and uh, exempt seniors from all these restrictions on the wage and hour laws so they can work less than 40 hours a week. Um, you know, put out the welcome mat. If you want to come back to work, we need you. The country needs you. And we want to make it easy for you. Uh, uh, and why somebody who's over 75 has got to pay Social Security and Medicare taxes? It's just crazy, in my opinion. If you, if you want people to work, and if you want to get rid of people, great. But I, last time I in it. I haven't walked into a restaurant or store in a long time that didn't have a sign up saying help wanted. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Um, on the Fed, Senator Phil, um, doesn't it make sense that, you know, the faster and more aggressive they are, the easier their job's going to be. But the longer they draw this thing out, the worse it's going to be or the harder it's going to be. Shouldn't they just... You know, I'm for shock and awe. Get it done fast. Be nice if they well, did you know, that while we were cutting taxes instead of raising them, too. Well, Machiavelli was a, was a politician and not an economist, but he said <laughs> long ago that when you got something that's that's hard and unpopular to do, do it and get it over with. Hmm. If you got something that's popular, do it slowly and give it out so that people can savor it. And look, we got a tough job to do. Rates are too low. They need to be raised. In my opinion, if I were doing it, uh, I would go ahead and do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're taking a real risk. Um, uh, Banks have got huge excess reserves. The return on the uh, three-month and one-year treasury bills are substantially above the rate of return on reserves. If banks uh, had a surge of lending and the money supply 
uh, started to grow very rapidly, uh, this thing could get out of control. Mm. So I would be more disciplined, but make it clear to people that, you know, we're not going to be raising rates by this much on a continuing basis, but rather than fool around and ratchet it up, we're just simply going to do what we need to do, and we're going to do it now. Uh, I think it would be a better policy, uh, but it's always easy to have advice when it's not your responsibility. Well, I think, you know, you go back to what Volcker did. I mean, I don't think the situation today is as it was in the 70s, at least not yet. But, you know, one thing Volcker taught us is just what you described. Get it done fast. Take your shock. Take your hit. And, of course, he had Reagan backing him up. I don't know how Biden will react or whatever, but um, they're better off moving now, Phil. They're better off moving tough. One thing about Reagan, too, there were a lot of people telling Reagan, uh, Volcker's going to kill the recovery. This is going to be bad for you politically. And Reagan never wavered. Never wavered. He knew that inflation was a bigger enemy uh, than, uh, than the problems he was facing and trying to get the economy growing. That if we didn't stop inflation, uh, that we couldn't do what we needed to do. Yeah. One thought lost down through the years. There'll be no strong growth without price stability. Anyway, Senator Phil Graham, you're wonderful. Keep on working, sir. Please, we need you. Thank you. Tell Judy I said hello. God All bless right. you, Larry. All right. God bless you. Folks, we're going to come back on the other side of the break, and we're going to talk to Andrew Giuliani, my Trump administration colleague. He's running for governor of the state of New York. He's going to try to save New York. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And please, during the week, join us on Fox Business. Name of the show is Cudlow, Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. And if by some chance you can't get us at 4, just dial up your favorite nine-year-old who will show you how to DVR the show. You'll never miss a thing. Anyway, this morning we welcome my Trump administration colleague and my friend, Andrew Giuliani, who's running for governor on the Republican side. His campaign website is SaveNewYork.org. It's an admirable goal. Andrew is a former associate director of the Office of Public Liaison, uh, and he was a damn good one at that, and uh, he's also a Newsmax TV contributor. Andrew, welcome back, buddy. Larry, it's always great to be on with the Happy Warrior, as always. So how are you doing today? (laughs) I'm good. So I was just thinking, save New York. Uh, I just made a little list. Crime, taxes, energy, education. All right. How's that for starters? I think you're absolutely right, Larry. I mean, I, I don't think you get much better than that. You know, I think probably the trickiest thing in all of this, and, and I attribute this to the great, late, great Roger Ailes, was he used to say that uh, a good campaign has three issues, a great campaign has two issues, and a winning campaign has one issue. Mm-hmm. I think there are about four or five issues right now that are plaguing New Yorkers and the reason why we're leading the country in out-migration. But, you know, we'll say 1A first and foremost is the fact that crime is going up and 
just in New York City, but all around the state. I, I was just in Rochester a couple of days ago, and last year they had the most murders ever in recorded history. And sadly, they're on pace to surpass that this year. Same thing in Binghamton. Violent crime in Buffalo is up 40% from last year. This has been a complete disaster. And if you want to overlay the time period, you can point to when bail reform was signed into law by Andrew Cuomo in April of 2019 and look at the direct spike all around the state of New York. Frankly, it's a disastrous, it was a disastrous piece of legislation. It's a disastrous law, and it needs to go. And I've said very clearly on day one, I will sit down with Andrea Stort Cousins and Carl Hasty in Albany in the legislature and say very simply, I need a full repeal of bail reform on my desk or I won't be funding your top priorities in our upcoming budget negotiations. Mm-hmm. You know, Andrew, uh, this crazy DA in San Francisco, Boudin, <laughs> uh, he was recalled. I mean, he was recalled with 60 percent, which is really something. Yeah. We're talking San Fran here, for heaven's sakes. Uh so anyway, we've got one of them in New York City. His name is Alvin sure, Bragg, right? I mean, would you fire him when you get in the office? Just fire the guy? Absolutely. On day one, I would invoke Article 8, Section 13B of the New York State Constitution, which states very clearly that any, any public officer who violates their oath of office can be removed by the governor, and I would remove Alvin Bragg on day one. Uh, I wish New York, like California, had a recall process where the people could do this. We do not have that process, and I'm certainly hopeful in looking at L.A. here in uh, shortly that, that we see that from the L.A. DA as, as well. But certainly as governor on day one, I would remove Alvin Bragg or, frankly, any other district attorney that chooses to reclassify entire categories of crime. That's what Alvin Bragg did when he sent the memo to his assistant district attorneys on day three of his administration, saying that he was not going to prosecute resisting arrest and armed robbery. That is wild. Think about the message that sends, Larry. It's, it's, it's chaos. Yeah, you know, I'm just thumbing through. There's another one of these stories, uh, Andrew. Yeah, here it is in the New York Post. Uh, 2018 stab slay mob last brag and so her kids her kid was killed stabbed to death in Harlem and Bragg and his office is making a deal with the killer which will wind up putting him back on the street in a relatively short period of time I mean this is the stuff that drives people crazy and drives them out of New York and um you know, undermines everything. You and the other thing is, you know, one one of the points when your dad was mayor, and I remember, I mean, I worked with him when he ran many many years ago. But your dad had this insight that it still exists today, more than ever, that you're not going to get businesses to reopen, you're not going to get yep. businesses to come to New York unless this is a safe place. And I think uh, all these politicians have lost track of that. Well, I think you're right, Larry. And, and looking at, you know, broken windows theory, which became a reality in New York and, and is, you know, one of the main reasons why we saw the, the murder rate go from 2000 a year regularly in the early 90s and late 80s to less than 600 by the by the late 90s to less than 300 just a decade and a half later was because of this broken windows theory, which simply said that criminals who, you know, do not have the repercussions, that do not have the behavior corrected 
will then graduate from petty larceny to grand larceny, then potentially to violent crime. But if you correct that behavior early on, um, all of a sudden the crime rate significantly goes down. You know, I think about my my little six-month-old daughter, Baby Grace, and I would think if I was going to walk down two blocks with her, and let's say there were businesses on one block, but you had uh, people who were shooting up on that block, you had homeless encampments, or you had another block that was clean, that felt welcoming, that felt safe. Which one of the two blocks do you think I would, uh, I would take mm-hmm. the stroller and my daughter down? Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so important for those businesses there and those job creators that we do everything that we can to make New York a safe and welcoming business. Also, from a tourism perspective, you know, when I look at uh, Penn Station or when I look at Grand Central Station, you got to remember that is the first and last impression that so many people that don't live in New York get of New York. And that's when they're making their determination whether or not they want to return and spend their hard-earned tax dollars hmm. in the Big Apple. And I think it's, we need to do everything we possibly can to make sure we are making our streets as safe as possible and our tourist areas as safe as possible. Um Andrew, just the last few minutes, taxes and energy, both, you know, we could have been like Pennsylvania uh, with uh, Marcellus, uh, but we didn't. And then again, we could be like North Carolina or Georgia on taxes, but we're not. I think first and foremost, when we look at the Marcellus Shale, it covers two-thirds of New York's landmass. And you can look at Pennsylvania and look at the southern tier of New York, and you'll see a difference in property values, and you'll see a difference, frankly, in commerce, not just directly with the energy business there, but also those that serve the energy business there. So I would work to make sure that New York is energy independent. The way, Larry, you work so hard at making sure America was energy independent when you worked as President Trump's director of the National Economic Council. And from a tax and regulatory perspective, look, just like President Trump said uh, in 2016, and that promise that you helped him keep so well for every regulation he'd sign into law, he would cut two. That number was over eight to one by the time he walked out of the White House. That's the approach we need to take in New York. From a tax perspective, I will absolutely sit down and work through the state legislature to make sure from a tax perspective We're competing more with the states, like you said, like Georgia or no-tax states like Florida and Texas and Tennessee, and not competing with California to be the highest-tax state in the country. Frankly, it feels like we're competing with Venezuela these days, to be perfectly honest, Larry, (laughs) and and that's not sustainable. Yeah. Um, Ed Koch once said, New York doesn't always have to be first in everything, taxes and welfare (laughs) and all the rest of it. Andrew Giuliani, buddy, uh, good luck on the campaign trail. We will talk some more. Uh, in the near future. Thanks for coming on the show. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. I'm Larry Kudlow. Other side of the break, Mr. Paul Debar, former Undersecretary for Science in the Energy Department. He's going to talk about an interesting point where OPEC actually asked us, the U.S., to join in. And then I want to know why gasoline prices are way too high. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back after this. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So... Oil hit five bucks a gallon nationwide, according to AAA. The world price of oil has been hovering around $120 a barrel. Inflation continues to rage because of energy, but also non-energy. Anyway, we've got uh, Paul Dabar, former Undersecretary for Science in the uh, Energy Department during the Trump administration. 
Uh, welcome back, uh, Paul Dabar. I'm reading your article, How the U.S. Turned the Tables on OPEC in the Wall Street Journal. Now, uh, I confess I did not know that OPEC tried to convince my pal Dan Briette, who at the time was Energy Secretary, that they wanted us to, well, not exactly join OPEC, but coordinate with OPEC. I didn't know that. And you're writing in the journal that they wanted us to. So what's up with that? What happened here? Yeah, Larry. So if you may remember, in the lead up to the COVID crisis, the Russians and the Saudis were beginning to renegotiate their old OPEC plus deal. And they were about to get into a big market share fight. And the U.S., as you may remember, was very much involved with uh, really trying to, you know, keep the two of them from 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 going after each other. And then and then COVID hit, and so there was quite a bit of energy diplomacy. And, and preceding that was the Three Seas Initiative, where you and the President and Secretary Perry and Briette, you know, was trying to help Poland and. The Baltics and Ukraine did start getting off Russian natural gas long before the you know this war, and so there was a lot of uh, you know there was a lot of energy diplomacy and American energy uh, dominance right as the leading producer of crude oil in the world, and uh, as as a result of all that uh, leading into COVID, uh, we were very much engaged in the diplomacy. Uh, President Trump actually announced the OPEC Plus deal from the White House. Um, around the COVID situation. And, and behind the scenes and even publicly, various oil ministers were saying that they appreciated American leadership and wanted to continue to coordinate with us. And behind the scenes, that's where the offer uh, came in. Hmm. Um, I'd have to call Briette about this because this is a very interesting sort of, it's one of these little sub stories. Um, in a sense though, Paul, we... We were coordinating with them. And it seems to me the Biden administration, with its hostility to fossil fuels, and its hostility, I mean, they've changed our Middle East foreign policy, now favoring Iran instead of Israel, and, uh, you know, insulting the Saudis. They wouldn't even take Biden's calls. I mean, that's a, regardless of how much, you know, that that's a big loss, it seems to me. The Saudis... I mean, they may wind up making their own deal with Israel, which is a good thing. The Iranian diplomacy for a new nuclear agreement is probably the dumbest thing, the worst thing I've ever heard. But um, what's the impact of this on the world price of oil? Because I want to get you, I, I want you to tell me about the world price of oil. It's stabilized, Paul. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's like 120, it's, it's been running in a range, right? 100, 105, the low end of the range, 120. It's not gone to 150 or 175. So is is that going to stay where it is, and, and what's OPEC's role in that? Yeah, so as, uh, as we've talked about before, Larry, uh, back uh, not that long ago, two years ago, the U.S. set the price of oil in the world because we became the swing producer of, right. uh, of additional crude. And as a result, uh, we were setting the price of oil uh, for the world because we were the swing producer. That was based on the price of production of crude for, for, uh, for shale, primarily in the Permian and the Bakken basins in the U.S., where prices to produce oil had dropped to around 30 to $40 a barrel. 
And as a result, we were setting the price of oil, which was about the time $50 a barrel, based on American leadership, American production, American exports. So ju- jumping forward, U.S. production dropped uh, during COVID and because of uh, ESG and some government policies, it hasn't recovered. Uh, and uh, and that's when the price of oil started moving up. When you know gas is went from two twenty five in, in uh, at the election uh, at the turnover in, in January mm-hmm. twenty twenty one to to five dollars. That's a seventy percent annualized inflation rate. And uh, and it's in, it, it's in part because the U.S. has not recovered uh, for for those drivers that I just said. And as a result, uh, and then and then in just in the last couple of months, Russia taking more oil off the market, so to speak, because of their invasion, we've shifted tremendous power back to the swing producers, which are which are now OPEC. Right. So um, we're still a little over a million barrels a day short of where we were pre-pandemic. And so, therefore, I'm going to argue that has contributed mightily to the increase in the world oil price, regardless of the Ukraine. And, Paul, let me add one more thing here. The Energy Department, what is it, uh, the, uh, you know, the think tank, the um, energy, what do they call it? The uh, uh, the Energy Information uh, yeah. uh, uh, Agency, yeah. which is the data, the data right. part of uh, okay. DOE. Yep. So, look, at they are... Uh, putting, you know, putting out, I try to read their reports occasionally. Um, we are undersupplied in gasoline, right? The demand for gasoline has gone up quite a bit, but the stocks, the inventory of gasoline has come down. So we are short, we're undersupplied gasoline and we're undersupplied oil. Now, I understand Russia and I understand Putin, but aren't those factors contributing, let's say, to $5 of gasoline, for example? Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, domestic production not recovering is a primary driver of inflation in the U.S. It's a global right. market, right? But the U.S. and, and we proved it as I, as I laid out in my article. At the bottom of uh, production in the U.S., uh, uh, in uh, um, we were we were down uh, at uh, four point nine million barrels a day in two thousand seven, and because of technology, capital, and policies, we went from 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 that low of 4.9 million barrels a day in the U.S. to 12.9 in 2019, that is a monumental jump mm. uh, in production in the U.S. So we have the capability to not only close that million you know uh, barrel a day gap, we could do far more uh, than that to fill what's going on both you know historically because of uh, because of U.S. production, but we we could fill the gap from Russia too. So that's the, that puts, you know, Biden blames Putin for oil and gas prices and inflation. But that's not true. If, I mean, if we weren't undersupplied here at home, right, these prices would be much lower everywhere. They, they might not have gone back to the lows. You might not be back to $60 a barrel globally. OK, I get that. You wouldn't be back to two and a quarter gasoline, but we wouldn't be where we are now. In other words, I'm just trying to fence off Putin. It is our production shortage here that's killing us. Yeah, the U.S. should be part of the solution, both for ourselves and and for the world. Uh, To say that the U.S. doesn't have an impact on global oil prices 
or gasoline prices is, is not inaccurate. Uh, sorry, it is, is it, it is inaccurate, as I kind of laid out in my article about how much we were able to fill the gap for us in the world, uh, you know, over the last decade. Uh, and and as, as you may remember, uh, Larry, when we were when we were around D.C., not only were we a million barrels a day up from where we are today, uh, the EIA actually predicted that we were going to be a, a, another two million barrels uh, on top of that that we were heading towards in terms of the U.S. industry. We were going so to 15. Is, we were going to 15 million barrels a day. Yeah, can that's you, right. That's can, when, when we were down there. Right. Can you imagine what that would be like now? I mean – Really, and, and it's going right to the gas at the pump. We're undersupplied, and the Bidens will not deal with that, Paul. They just will not. In other words, I can't stop Putin in the Ukraine. I get that, okay, and I get the embargoes and, and the threat, but we could be doing so much more at home. Last uh, 45 seconds. Yeah, Larry, I mean, the 3 million barrel a day gap between where we are today and where we could be, right, right. based on historical projections. Right. That 3 million barrels a day would almost completely cover what the Russians have taken right. off the global market. Right. There you go. Paul Debar, former chief uh, scientist at the Energy Department under President Trump. Thank you very much, Paul. All right, folks, we're going to take a break. On the other side of the break... Fred Flights, National Security Advisor to Trump, is going to tell us what's going on in the Middle East and Iran. Oh, my gosh. We'll be right back. I'm Larry Kudlow. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So we're going to switch gears and we're going to go to the Middle East to Iran. And this crazy idea that the Bidens have of uh, making some kind of new nuclear deal with Iran. And it turns out that even the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, they have been investigating and they have now censored Iran. They can't get any information out of them. This is not a new story, but for some reason... The Bidens continue to have diplomacy with them. I don't get it, but Fred Flights is here, former Deputy Assistant and Chief of Staff of the National Security Council in the Trump administration. He's former President of the Center for Security Policy, and he's currently Vice Chair of the America First Policy Institute Center for American uh, Security. Fred, uh, welcome, buddy. Um, Good to be here. Give us an update. I mean, I'm reading your piece in Newsmax. I thought I'd lost it, but I found it. And um, the, the, I, the, the IAEA, which is the governing body here, is um, dissatisfied with Iran, censured Iran. So why are the Bidens still talking to Iran about a new deal? That's what's so crazy to me. It, you know, it's crazier than it even seems. The IAEA passed a very mild resolution censoring Iran. It, called, it expressed profound concern about Iran's insufficient substantive cooperation 
with the IEA's efforts to investigate evidence of covert nuclear weapons work. And we learned about that because the Israelis stole all kinds of documents from the Iranians in 2018, and the Iranians won't explain this stuff. So this resolution passed. Iran responded by retaliating, by pulling out IAEA monitoring cameras and turning on centrifuge machines that will let it make uranium fuel even faster. So, so how did the Biden administration respond? National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said that Iran's issues with the IAEA are in a separate track than our effort to negotiate a new deal. That means we're just going to ignore Iran's violation of the old deal and its race towards a nuclear weapon because the Obama people are obsessed with negotiating a new deal. Why? First of all, when did Jake Sullivan say this? He said it on Friday. Wow. It, this is in a Wall Street Journal ed- editorial. Wow. I, I, look, I don't understand any of this. What, what benefit could possibly accrue from a deal with Iran? We know they lie, cheat, steal. They're the biggest terrorists in the region. What in the world do the Bidens think they're going to accomplish with a deal? That's what I've never understood. And now with this uh, IAEA stuff, I mean, I, I don't get it, Fred. Well, you, you know, it was a bad deal, and President Trump was right to pull out of it. He called it the worst deal ever. It had weak verification. It didn't handle cover missiles, which are, are Iran's nuclear weapon delivery system. And Iran was cheating on it. We know it was cheating on it. A lot of this, Larry, is the fact that Trump withdrew. And the Biden administration resents that. The left resents that. They think the nuclear deal was a great achievement of Obama. And they just won't consider incredibly credible evidence that this is a bad deal and Iran's been cheating. It, it, they're just, they, they have blinders on. All they want to do is to reverse something that President Trump did and restore an Obama accomplishment. And they would give Iran a couple of hundred billion dollars a year? A couple of hundred billion and would they lift the sanctions, the economic sanctions, which have hurt Iran? Uh, Iran will get greater access to nuclear technology, at least $90 billion in sanctions relief, $7 billion in cash. But the one requirement Iran is demanding is that they want sanctions lifted from the Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is mm-hmm. the organization that runs their terrorism. They want them taken off the terrorist list. And the mm-hmm. Biden administration was considering doing that until – uh, President Biden recently said he won't do it, but frankly, I, I don't believe it. I think they will find some clever way of saying they're not taking the Revolutionary Guard off the list, but they'll actually take them off the list. Fred, any deal with Iran would undermine the Abraham Accords, would it not? Uh, I think that this it is definitely going to hurt the Abraham Accords, and 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 a related development making this worse. The Israelis said you cannot have a consulate for the Palestinians in Jerusalem. Hmm. Well, we opened up something that is a consulate in Jerusalem this past week, but we're calling it something else. Uh, you know, this is going to make this is going to increase Iran's influence in the region. It's alienating the Israelis. It's alienating all the Gulf states. The Saudis don't want another nuclear deal with Iran. They didn't like the last one. So I think that's exactly right. And I'm reading in various uh, reports, Fred Flights, that. Um the Saudis are getting together with Israel on their own and that they're sharing, first of all, they're meeting. Second of all, they're sharing intelligence. And third of all, they're talking about, you know, some kind of pact or deal 
that would enhance trade and investment between the two countries. In other words, it's as though Israel and the Saudis are working by themselves without Biden administration to continue the Abraham Accords. I mean, are those reports accurate? Incredibly, the Saudis are meeting with the Israelis. Yep. And even though the Biden administration doesn't like the Abraham Accords and tried to stop even using that term, mm. uh, fortunately, the states in the region, they are still committed to this effort to to improve relations with Israel and re- recognize Iran as the principal threat. But making Iran more influential and powerful through this nuclear deal, that's going to upset the whole apple cart. So where do you think this so-called deal stands right now? It, you know, you read it goes hot, it blows cold, it blows hot. How is it blowing right now? I think the most significant development was a Senate resolution by Jim Langford that passed with 66 votes in favor, mm. condemning not just the deal, but Biden's Iran diplomacy and demanding that the agreement be submitted for uh, review by Congress. I think that has actually caused the Biden administration to back down on this. I mean, there were so many Democrats, I think 14 Democrats voted against something the Biden administration wants to do, which is, you know, as you know, that's almost unheard of. Mm. Uh, Schumer voted against it also. Mm. And and Democrats who support the Biden administration, they tried to stop Langford. He said he'd stop the work of the Senate if he didn't get a vote on this. Mm. I'm hopeful that Iran is being so unreasonable and the Biden administration is so politically weak, they're just going to go ahead and keep this in limbo. There'll be talks forever, but there won't be an agreement. And, you know, while Biden is you know, finally got around to attacking Vladimir Putin and even saying that Putin should go. Uh, Russians were negotiating uh, in this Iranian deal, and we, and, we, and we were negotiating with the Russian negotiators? Iran has refused to meet with us directly. <laughs> and we said, well, that's okay. So we're in another hotel in Vienna. All the other delegations, including the Russians, the Chinese, and the Europeans, they're in a, a, a different hotel with the Iranians. And the Russian ambassador has become the chief interlocutor between us and the Iranians, and they've used that to influence the agreement to get an agreement that's not just positive for Iran, but it's positive for Russia. It, it's, it's just insane that, <laughs> that we were relying on the Russians to negotiate a nuclear deal with Iran. What do you think about that, Fred Flights? Former Na- your former national security advisor. What, what do you think about it? I mean, the inc- putting politics aside, okay? We don't like Biden. I understand that. But just in general principle terms, what do you think of that? The incompetence of this administration is just staggering. <laughs> we should never have joined talks if the Iranians wouldn't meet with us. Let's just start there. It just went downhill. And, I mean, the Russians are also collaborating with the Chinese to come up with a deal that the Russian ambassador once said – this is better than I ever thought I'd get for Iran. It, it's, it's just gross incompetence. It starts at the top. It starts with foreign policy advisors who should not be there, Blinken and Sullivan, don't know what they're doing. If Biden's going to fix his foreign policy, you and I want him to do that because we want him to keep their nation safe. He has to bring in men and women of experience and gravitas and get rid of these people who don't know what they're doing. Yeah, see, that's you're exactly right. That's the part that hurts the most for me, okay? I am not a follower of Joe Biden. I do not agree with his woke policies on the economy. I think he's bungled national security. Having said all that, Fred Flights, you're right. You know, he is the American president, right? And so people look at this abroad, and it looks 
terrible. And so that damages America and that damages our reputation. That's the part of this, I think, that hurts the most. I mean, I hope sincerely you're right. Uh, the Iranian uh, deal m may be dead. By the way, this guy Sullivan, you know, he's like a Hillary advance man. He was one of the people selling the Trump-Russia collusion arguments, you know, that surfaced in the Durham investigations. But That's now, right. is Blinken better? Is he better than uh, Sullivan? No, he's just as bad. I've known Blinken for a long time. He was a staff member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He was a hack when I knew him. Yeah. He, uh, Biden should get rid of him, get rid of Sullivan, hire Leon Panetta, Bob Gates, uh, Chris Coons. There's lots of Democrats out there who you and I might not like, but we would respect them for having leadership and vision and the backbone to stand up to Biden when he asks him to do something that makes no sense. No, I like, you know, uh, you mentioned Chris Coons. Um, he was a fairly moderate guy. Put him in the State Department. You know, I've watched him and listened to him. He's, he's better than the rest of these guys they got. And he is a pal of Biden's. I don't know why. I mean, it's astonishing to me, Fred, after the catastrophe in Afghanistan, and they're always, you know, a dollar short and a day late in the Ukraine. No changes have been made in the national security uh, structure. That's the thing. No changes have been made. Give you the last word. Well, you work for President Trump. Don't you think if that happened to him, people would have been fired? Yes, heads would have rolled. Heads that's would have right. rolled. I mean, that's yep. exactly right. Heads would have rolled. I might not like all the head rolling, but heads would have rolled. <laughs> You're terrific. Fred Flights, thank you for the update. We appreciate it very, very much. Uh, folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I'm going to bring in my dear friend Judy Shelton, who is an expert on monetary policy in the Fed. The Fed's got so much more work to do to conquer inflation. She'll give us some hints on what they should be doing. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. As we have been discussing earlier in the show, inflation report yesterday was actually worse. There's really no evidence that inflation is peaking. In fact, it may be getting worse, judging from the internals of that report. So we bring on my dear friend Judy Shelton, who is an expert on all these matters. She's a senior fellow at the Independent Institute and a former economic advisor to President Trump, author of a number of great books, including her prediction that the Russian Soviet empire was going to fall, which, you know, Judy, that book, uh, people have forgotten that book. People forget everything, but I don't forget. That book was one of the most remarkable forecasts ever. I mean, you just sat there. When you, you wrote that in the late 80s, and a couple of years later they folded? <laughs> well, it's nice of you to mention it, Larry, and, and great to be with you again. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I was out at the Hoover Institution. I was a senior research fellow, and I started to write uh, what would have been um, a scholarly, but perhaps with a somewhat boring title, study on the impact of Western capital on the Soviet economy. But the more I looked at the internal monetary, banking, and financial situation of the Soviet Union, uh, the more it became clear that the country was going bankrupt. Hmm. And uh, so then the book was was published as the coming Soviet crash. And I remember it a lot. A lot of people didn't believe it at the time. But um, we found it to be so that a country can be bankrupt in 
in many different ways, financially, morally. I think that the whole concept of, of government knows best and, and state-controlled um, resources and uh, having ghost plan dictate how things would be produced and distributed was the exact wrong approach, and um, they paid a big price for it. I think there's still um, Russia still held back by some of those concepts. I want to get to the Fed in a second, but let's just continue this. Is, is Russia now today paying a big price, a sufficiently big price, uh, for their uh, Ukraine war invasion? I mean, I and Judy, I don't know near as much as you know about that country. I just want to note that the Russian ruble, which crashed uh, at the beginning of that war and some of the early sanctions put on, but the ruble has recovered fully, uh, and then some, which is, I find, a very troubling development. So are they paying a big price now for this war? Economically, yes, they are. Mm. And they have been largely ostracized from Western financial capital in that they've been denied access, and that's critically important to them. I mean, Putin came to power in this crucible just a matter of weeks after Russia declared bankruptcy. And so that's kind of the recurring nightmare. It started when when the Soviet Union uh, would not honor the debts that had been incurred under the prior czarist regime. And then when Russia went bankrupt, um, that was the beginning of the end as, as far as Putin thinking the country could never reemerge. They they because they're so reliant on energy and because they got sweetheart deals to supply Europe, which we're now seeing what a huge mistake that was on the part of Europe, um, they were able to, to recover a lot. As I say, they're overly dependent on energy exports. But um, on the ruble, that's because that market is wholly manipulated and controlled. It really doesn't reflect the market value of, of the ruble, I, I guarantee people would much rather have dollars, but mm. they have controlled that market, and, uh, and so we're getting a distorted false reading there. All right, got it. Thank you for that. Um, let's turn to the Fed. Um, inflation is raging, and if you were a Fed governor, which you should have been, um, what, do you, what do they have to do now in your judgment? Well, thank you for saying that. Um, I do think if I had been able to be a voice, I would have been dissenting quite a lot. Mm. Um, we saw inflation as a threat um, at least at least by by last July, and yet they were continuing to engage in monetary accommodation. They they finally slowed um, the the. They decided to end and taper uh, at half the rate they had intended. They were going to go another six months hmm. as late as December, and then they cut it off in March. But um, now we're in this situation that's so sad, really. It's, it's, a, it's a travesty that their only option, having blown it on inflation, is to punish the economy. And I, I think they are going to have to – it's like having to go through with this now to prove that they acknowledge the mistake over the money supply. But what I fault the Fed for 
is that um, they were in on this. They were encouraging the White House and Congress to overspend. And um, and so they're part of that part of the problem as well, the fiscal side. But the Fed's remedy is going to hurt production as as much as it's going to kill demand. I mean, all they're going to be able to do is make the cost of doing business even higher for any company that is reliant on on commercial loans. And and so they're going to it's going to be so hard on anybody who has an adjustable rate loan. Mm. And and I don't I think if you really look at what they're hoping to accomplish, you have to ask yourself how is making it more expensive to borrow, and then that goes to the bottom line for people who, who provide goods and services, how is that going to help on the inflation front? And, and even more so, how is, is enticing banks to keep money, earning interest in their depository accounts at the Federal Reserve, where it is sterile? It's not buying anything, it's not investing in anything, what is that going to do to help increase supply? What banks should be doing is being engaged in financing productive investment that leads to increased output. Instead, we had a Fed that was encouraging the Fed to make payments to people not to work mm-hmm. and, and to just exacerbate the increasing demand against a shrinking supply. So I'm hoping that, that the supply um, issue can can improve in spite of the Fed, but I don't think the Fed's tool is geared to that particular problem. The only thing it might do in the Mundellian sense, and we both know that Bob Mundell's supply-side prescription was the right one, if you have a pro-growth tax reform, mm-hmm. if you cut the regulatory burden, if you do some things to expand supply and you have tight money, that's going to attract financial capital into the United States. And if it goes into productive endeavor, that will be good. Judy, that's what I've been saying, too. I mean, I said it on my riff last night again on the show, uh, and I wrote it up. Um, you're exactly right. This would be a time to cut to, at a minimum to make the Trump tax cuts permanent and to deregulate. But the Bidens won't do that. So they're going to make it harder on the Fed. But, you know, go back. If if you were following a commodity price rule, the Fed would have seen this 15 months ago. Okay, you give them some slack with the rise in you know commodities, uh, including gold, uh, in the second half of 2020. But 2021, the commodity index has continued to rise. I mean, the commodity index, Bloomberg index, just hit a new peak this week, Judy Sheldon. I mean, that's a warning signal. It absolutely is. It's one that Alan Greenspan used to pay a great yes. deal of attention to. Yes. And uh, we really had the, the great moderation under Greenspan. And he often said that he thought the best the Fed could do would be to replicate what we had under a gold standard. Mm-hmm. So he was, he was um, you know, it's funny. These days, somehow, if you mention gold, it's considered provincial or a throwback. The most sophisticated central bankers we've ever had, Paul Volcker and Alan Greenspan, of course they looked at commodity prices and particularly gold because they grew up under a system where there was a connection between the U.S. dollar and gold. Hmm. 
Well, so that Fed should just do its work, huh? The faster, the better. Yeah, as I say, Larry, if I thought it would help, I would say go 100 basis points every meeting yeah. because that's what they're going to have to do to yeah. even it's way past the end of this year to even get close to getting out in front of 8.6% inflation. Mm-hmm. If if they're really abiding by the whole notion of Keynesianism, which is what underlies the Fed's framework in managing mm-hmm. the money supply, then you have to increase the real rate of interest. Yes. So you deduct the nominal rate, the inflation, and they'd have to go to 10% to get in front of this inflation. Ooh. Judy Shelton, thank you. We will talk very soon. Thanks for coming on our show, by the way. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We will take a quick break, and on the other side of the break, we're going to do some stock market work. It was a very ugly week for stocks once again. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Join us, join us during the week, Fox Business. Name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday, every day. And you will see these two gentlemen. We're going to have some fun here, but it's not a fun story, the stock market. I mean... It got whacked yesterday. The Dow was down 880 points. For the week, the Dow was off 1,507 points. Not good. The S&P way down. NASDAQ's always been down. So we will turn to our guests. This will be a nice, quiet segment. I'll be lucky to get a word in edgewise here, but let's go for it. Jim Urio, Director of TJM Institutional Services, Chicago's leading restaurateur and Kenny Polcari, managing partner at Case Capital Advisors and chief market strategist at Slate Stone Wealth. Uh, so, gents, this is a very gloomy stock market period. Let's assess this. Uh, Jim Urio, I will begin with you. Uh, Jim, here, against the backdrop of the lousy inflation report, I mean, that infor- report yesterday, if anything, suggests inflation is getting worse not better, so much for the peak inflation. Now, we're all going to wait, I guess, is the Fed meeting this coming week uh, mm-hmm. to see how yeah. tight they're going to be and whether they're not going to sell bonds and so forth. Uh, what's going to happen here in this stock market? So here, here's what the conclusion I came to yesterday. And you know, from since the beginning of this year, I thought 20% down in the S&P. But yesterday it changed a little bit, I think, now probably down 30%. Uh, mm-hmm. And the the... What reality is this, is that the Fed understands that they have to destroy demand enough to probably um, usher in the next recession. The only thing that can keep that from being a a bad recession is if the government completely flips and does a 180 on energy policy. Now, the first part of that, the Fed, is likely to happen. The second part does not seem likely at all, except something monumental happening in the fall. Um, just, I don't know if you heard the, the comments from Chevron CEO Mike Worth just last week saying he doesn't believe another refinery will be built in this country ever because in order to do that, they have to have a 10-year plan of making money, and they can't make any predictions about what the government pinball policies are going to be even in the next six months, let alone 10 years. So if the energy problem doesn't get solved 
The Fed is going to have to destroy demand enough to bring us into a recession. That recession, and, and I don't think it's going to be like 2006. That was something that built up over decades of um, you know people borrowing money to buy houses, and that's a, that's something that takes a long time to work its way out. I don't think it'll be that, but I think it could be something fairly meaningful. And I think down 30 percent in the stocks is not unreasonable at this point. Yeah, Mike Worth. Mike Worth, by the way, is a very smart guy, and um, with all these environmental regulations. Uh, he's probably right. I mean, given those policies, you'll never get a new refinery in our lifetime and never get a new pipeline in our lifetime. You may not get a new permit in our lifetime. So I, I don't blame him for that. Yeah, and then we scratch our heads as to why gas is going through the roof. And that's filtering into everything into that CPI as well, too. David Rosenberg did a nice thing that I don't completely agree with, by the way. And when you tease out all the elements in the CPI that are very, very linked to energy prices, that I mean, it's still wildly high inflation, particularly when you add back in the housing that should be. But it's a, it's a huge deal. Energy part of this is a massive deal. Yeah. So, Kenny Pocari, um you've been bearish, too. How do you see it? So I have been bearish, and I'm not necessarily surprised because you and I have discussed this before. They were talking about inflation in the past tense, saying it peaked, yeah. like in the past. It is it is still continuing to peak. It's not it's not in the past tense at all, and we saw that yesterday. So I continue. I wasn't surprised by yesterday's number, quite honestly. Um, uh, you know, we've been saying it, and I've been saying it. I was surprised that, you know, they were trying to downplay it as much as they did. But in the end, it blew through even the estimate, right? So mm. I'm with Jimmy in the sense that I do think there's certainly further to go. I'm not so sure I see the S&P down 30%. I think we're down about uh, 14% as of yesterday. I think we are. Um, no, you're, I, I, you're down eight, I would, 18% year to date. On the S&P. On the S&P, 18% year-to-date. Uh, okay, so, put in 10% so, for the producer price index, and in real terms, you're down almost 30% already. Right, right. And Just so saying. I suspect that next week when you get the PPI number, which I also expect to continue to be hot, I don't mm -hmm. think that's peaking either. And, that's, and if that's higher than the expectation, then next month's CPI is potentially going to be still higher still because the producer prices work their way down into the consumer prices by about a six-week lag, six lag, as we know. So I continue to see prices going up, and that's going to continue continue to put pressure, certainly on the on the tech names and on the uh, and on the broader market, as the Fed is going to now be pushed into the 75 basis point, or even like you and I say, the one percent yeah. uh, range. Where they have to just make they're going to have to make a, a, a drastic decision and and stop with the 25 and 50 basis point moves and go straight to one percent move at least to shock the market to see if that does anything at all. My sense is that they're way behind the eight ball, and even that initially is not going to help. You know, I agree. I mean, I'm talking 100. I'm with you, 100 basis points. We just had on the segment before this Judy Shelton, who knows an awful lot about Fed monetary policy. Uh, she doesn't like demand uh, destruction. She doesn't like recessions. But, in fact, the Fed is so far behind the curve, both in terms of inflation expectations, which deteriorated again in the Michigan survey that was out yesterday, as well as the actuals. I mean, Jim Muriel, if they did that, what would the impact be on the bond market? You're you're back to I don't know what was it three three fifteen three sixteen on the ten year. Where's that thing going to go? 
Well, first of all, we are 317 on the 10-year, but remember, too, that the yield curve twos to tens yesterday steepened dramatically. It went from like 0.22 to 0.13. That's a, that's a collapse in the yield curve. I do think that short-end yields are going to go, you know, probably up to 4.5% before. Cause, and, and everyone else is saying that we need to go to 8%. Even Brian Westbury, I was speaking to him yesterday, need to go 8%. That's all fine and good, but we're also talking about – High prices being a mild cure for high prices if wage inflation, wage inflation isn't following, and it's not. And we're also talking about just all the riches that came from these asset prices that were wildly inflated, and that's coming out as well, too. So there are several things, and supply chains are starting to fix themselves despite weird decisions out of China. So I do think the 10-year probably gets up to 4%, but the two-year goes higher. I do see an inversion coming because I do see a recession coming. Uh, does that answer your question? I forgot what your question was. And by the way, no, that's you started right. out, this is somber stuff, but I'm not, I mean, I don't, I feel bad that I have to like not mess around and joke around because it is somber and a lot of people are suffering, but uh, us not having fun with our jobs doesn't do anything to that, does it? Well, it's, um, you know, it's somber and sobering. And it's infuriating too. Yeah, that, because we both, well, three of us know that with the, the one thing the Fed could have done could have happened 15 months ago when right. we were all screaming at them to do it, and they right. didn't. And the right. housing market, they were still buying bonds two months ago. This is outrageous. Right. Right. They should. What are they going to do? Wait. You, you know, Kenny, if, if they did, if shouldn't they be unloading their bonds? I mean, you're well, going to have to take cash out of the economy. You're going to have to stop the growth of M2. M2 has slowed. That's good. Right. Whether it stays slow, I don't know. But aren't they going to have to slim down that portfolio? And the support for the bond market is going to be gone. That's correct. And that's, and that's going to be the next year to drop, right? Because they, I think they're at the rate of $45 billion a month, getting up to $95 billion by August. Um, and once, once and, and, and investors know this, though, but once the buyer of last resort, and they have been the buyer of last resort, and everyone knows that, once they start pulling away and they're no longer going to be the inline bid, that's where you're going to see the void in prices, right? The, 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 the natural, the institutional buyer is going to bid much lower because now there's no, quote, unquote, support there by the Fed. And that's when you'll see prices decline and then yields spike. Yep. And it's coming. Yep, it it's is coming. coming. It is coming. Uh, Wall Street consensus is always wrong. And it's wrong on inflation. It's wrong on rates. It's just plain wrong. You guys are much more independent. Let's take a quick break. This was a wonderful opening. I know, God. <laughs> Things always look darkest before they turn completely black. Anyway, we're here with Jim Urio, and we're here with Ken Polcari. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back, folks. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking stocks with Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services, and Ken Paul Carey, managing director at Case Capital Advisors, chief market strategist, Slate Stone Wealth. Jim Urio, just to come back to your earlier point uh, with respect to Chevron and refineries, you know, Biden's could make this a lot easier if they'd open the spigots instead of keeping them closed. I mean, that's like the most obvious sort of econ energy 101 idea. They could make, I had Paul Debar on earlier. He was a former head scientist in the energy department under Trump. You know, we are undersupplied uh, by over a million barrels of oil compared to the pre-pandemic peak. But at that time, pre-pandemic, 
the estimates from the Energy Department were that we were going to hit 15 million barrels a day. We are still a million short, and that, of course, would contribute to gasoline. I mean, the Bidens could make this transition to low inflation a lot easier if they had any damn common sense instead of this woke stuff that they keep practicing. I I think you're a sweet and gentle, compassionate man to think that it's just incompetence and not something nefarious. And to underscore that, last week they passed a regulation that increased uh, regulations on refining diesel, I believe it was, last week. Two months ago, they debated about passing a law limiting fossil fuel companies' access to capital markets. By the way, that same week they called them and asked why they weren't pumping more gas. They told us in the primaries that they, ha- that they had fossil fuel companies in their crosshairs, on their radar. They want to switch to the Green New Deal. So uh, to me, I think that the debate is, not, is about whether they're doing it on purpose or doing it on accident. Um, and I don't know what the answer to that is. I tend to think it's nefarious. I think mm. that they want gas prices this high because they want their Green New yeah. Deal. I mean, yeah. you can't have a build back better unless you have a demolition phase. This is outrageous. <laughs> but you can't have a green you can't have a Green New Deal when there's zero infrastructure to support the Green New Deal. The, the idea that you can just you know decide, okay, we're not using gas anymore. Everyone's going to go electric. That's great, except there's no place to charge your car. There's no infrastructure. There's nothing. And so the transition has to happen over, in my mind, at least two decades before you're going to go green, right? So And we, this is something we got to take back conservation as part of our conservative initiative. I want a great environment, and this is not the way to do it if we're not ready. Your amen to you, Brother you. Kenny. Sorry I interrupted. I'll, I'll shut up now. I'm telling you, <laughs> no, the I, Green New Deal, listen – Car- it's carbon-free by immaculate conception. That's basically right. what they're going to do. I mean, they have no plan, no alternative infrastructure. Ken Paul Carey, come back to stocks. What is the you know profits of the mother's milk of stocks? What is the earnings outlook now? Well, look, the earnings outlook that, that you can start to see uh, that the revisions have already started. Right, they're starting to come in lower now for the for the quarter that's going to start in a month, in uh, three weeks, in July. Um, they're starting to be right, revised down, which makes perfect sense because we can see the economy slowing. Mm-hmm. I think by the end of the year, if we see if we see them up five percent, I think that and that's down from I think what was earlier nine percent at the beginning of the year. If they're still up five percent, that's going to be a win-win, and I'm not even sure that's going to happen mm-hmm. if. Uh, if, uh, you know, if the Fed now goes in June and then July and in September and they really start to, you know, impact what consumers are going to feel, what they're going to spend, what they're going to do, uh, you may see a marked slowdown by the uh, by the third quarter into the fourth quarter. Yeah, not good. Jim Urio, just as an aside, what are your restaurants showing? What kind of business? I see. We're fine. My friends in the business at the top end are starting now to see a little bit of a pullback from people. But we're, you know, we're an upscale pub and we have reasonable prices and we've made the conscious decision to work on less margins and try to weather this storm. But there's something I'll add about the restaurant business. I'll say our our costs are probably up 25% and our prices are probably up 12%. When the storm goes away, prices don't come back down because the the restaurants bear the scars of worrying about where the next shoe is going to drop. And and that's just not the way inflation works. So this is saying, but in the restaurant business now, I still think it's it's a combination of the pent-up demand from two years of being restricted that's coinciding and colliding with the higher prices. And right now it's still pretty good, but it's starting to turn at the high end, I believe. Mm. 
Listen, I got to tell you something. Speaking of restaurants, I had to go out to dinner last night at the business dinner. There was just me and there was one other person. We didn't even eat a lot. We had nothing to drink, no liquor, no wine. We, I had a bowl of pasta, a salad and a bowl of pasta, and he had a salad and a steak and vegetables. No wine, no drink. And the bill was $135 before the tip, right? Because there were service charges on there and there was COVID charges on it. And I looked at the bill and I thought, no, listen, I'm not, okay, $135. But it's two people that went out. I had a dish of pasta. <laughs> you right? should have had a drink. You should have had a drink. <laughs> that would have made it easier. <laughs> I'm my head going, okay, how much longer is this going to last? What do you... What do you guys, uh, in the remaining moments, what's an investor to do, uh, Jim Murio? So I still am going with the same things that I've liked for the last year and a half, which has uh, crude, crude oil names, gold and silver. Yesterday, gold had a really, really interesting day where off the number, off the CPI number, it started heading precipitously lower, recovered, and finished higher. If we see more higher gold prices again on Monday, I will believe that that, that particular asset, it's worked its way back in to some sort of safe haven st- um, status, and that's what I'm looking at. I don't think anything else looks good because everything is so highly correlated. Um, the NASDAQ hates higher rates, and rates are definitely going up. That part is for sure. We don't need to debate that anymore. So I don't like any of it except for things that you know hurt when you drop it on your foot, as Dennis Cartman used to say. Mm-hmm. So commodities, particularly that's, those. That's right. Commodities, actually. Commodities. Commodity indexes are still pretty strong. Ken Carry, what what would you uh, recommend? Listen, the coal stocks, have you looked at BTU, names like BTU this year? It's up 200%, hmm. right? When you, think about, when you think about the role that coal is going to play now, certainly across Europe anyway, but that continues to be a strong sector. And I would continue to, on pullbacks. I, would, I wouldn't be chasing it on the updates, but I would buy stocks buy, you know, into that on pullback. I also continue to like energy broadly. ExxonMobil just made a new high last week. Chevron, as much as, they, as much as Chevron was talking about rigs, Chevron is more than just that oil company, right? It is also companies in transition. So I think that there are opportunities there. And in a rising rate environment, I continue to like, you know, the financial. Jim Urio, if you're a bond person, what the hell do you do? <laughs> you hold on, you you duck, you b- build a bunker. I think, yeah, um, yeah no, I, I think it's uh, it, again. You guys talked about before the Fed actually coming and selling its bonds, which I don't believe that's going to happen. I think the quantitative tightening is going to accelerate. And they're going to let them roll off. But you know, I just want to be the guy at that primary dealer shop when the phone rings to the to the Fed and they said, "Hey, can you make me a price on a trillion? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, can I put you on hold for ten <laughs> minutes?" Is what I say. So, I mean, I just think, I just think it would rile the markets. A little too much. And I think people who, who talk about when are they going to sell their bonds, many of them aren't market people like us who might not understand that that could be a little disruptive, to say the least. Right. So you go into a bunker. And let me just ask you another one, uh, both of you, before we lose you. Commodity indexes have been relatively strong, which surprises me, even with the Fed threats and so forth. They haven't knocked commodities down yet. I'm to increase by 40%, remember. We, we're still, I mean, there's a lot of money out there. We, we, we haven't gotten it, we haven't been able to pull it back in yet. M2 growth has slowed, but it's still, you know, mm-hmm. as, as our pal Milton Friedman says, it's, inflation is always an everywhere monetary phenomenon. That's where you're seeing it the most, is things chasing. You, you never, when you squeeze it, you never know where it's going to pop out and what's going to benefit more. Housing, we all knew that a year and a half ago, but uh, the commodities are still doing well because there's a lot of money out there. Well, Listen, food commodities are going to continue to get squeezed because Putin is now using food as a, as a weapon of choice as well, as he blocks 
uh, the shipments of grains and uh, out of Ukraine, right? So food commodities are going to continue to surge, which is only going to add to that, you know, to, to the pain that consumers around the world are going to feel. That's a rough business investing in commodities. I mean, just for ordinary investors, that's a pretty tough business, Kenny. Yeah, I agree. You got to be. Which, <laughs> I'm not in that space that much. Yeah, no, I mean, Jim Urio is the quintessential commodities trader. Listen to him. You know, you can go, go on and on and on. And, but it's rough, Jim Urio. It's, oh, you've got to no, be very nimble and quick in that game. There's no question about it. And people always think when they look at commodities that things are going to move on the fundamental story. But that's not always the case. It's market positioning more than anything. And there's a lot of speculators in commodities that can turn in an instant. Absolutely. Jim Urio, <laughs> Ken Polcari, two great pals. It's a rough discussion on the stock market. I appreciate it, gentlemen. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a break. And Liz Peak and Steve Moore, Money and Politics on the other side of the break. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. Join us during the week, please. Fox Business, the name of the show is Kudlow, Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. every day. And two of the biggest stars on that show, Liz Peek, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore, FreedomWorks, actually chief economist of FreedomWorks, and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline and his new book, Godzilla. Uh, welcome back, kids. So let me begin, um, I can't avoid it really, with the TV spectacular on the January 6th committee. What a wonderful thing that was. But the New York Post editorial this morning, Trump Dems remain obsessed with 2020. GOP <laughs> should look to future instead. Okay. Uh -huh. Let's peek. I begin with you. GOP should look to future instead, if such a thing is possible. What do you think? Oh, I think that's totally true. And I think the Republicans are looking to the future. They're looking to a very bright future when they take over both houses of Congress uh, <laughs> in November, for example. Uh, but should they move on from uh, January 6th? Yes, I think they all, every Republican has denounced what took place that night or that day. Uh, they've denounced the constant refrain from President Trump about how he had the election stolen from him, et cetera. Uh, I think the people who are so, so solidly immersed in this and can't let it go are, are the Democrats because they have nothing else. I mean, Joe Biden was elected by people who didn't like Donald Trump, and that is really the beginning and end of Joe Biden's campaign. What do they campaign on now? Uh, certainly not 8.6 percent inflation, certainly not soaring crime and open border, et cetera. They campaign on hating Donald Trump. You know what? I just think the rest of the world has moved on. Mm. Steve Moore, I'm interested. I mean, January 6th was a very bad day. No two ways about it. But I don't see this great conspiracy that the Democrats are trying to put together. Now, I agree with Liz 100%. It's a distraction. They have nothing else to talk about, so they're trying to make this into a big deal. Trump did uh, call for 20,000 National Guard troops, and this connection that they're supposedly making between Trump and the, and the crazies, I mean, I don't see the smoking gun, and, and that's why I, I don't take this uh, committee, Jan 6 committee stuff very seriously. What do you think? 
Well, I have a confession to you, Larry. I watched the basketball game. I didn't watch. <laughs> <laughs> I watched the NBA finals. I didn't, I didn't watch much of it, uh, as I think most Americans did. I was on um, a plane. I, I missed the whole thing. And I was at an so, event, so none of us watched it. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, yes, the whole thing is distur- highly disturbing. You know, it was. I agree with you. A terrible day for America. I mean, I was I'm horrified by seeing some of the clips, um, but uh, it was. Um, I, I think that look, the American people want to move on. They want to talk about <laughs> the future, and I think the post gives good advice to Trump when it's you know, and, and he can't get past what happened in the election. The Democrats get can't get past it. Nobody wants to talk about the future, um, and so. Uh, given the you know collapse of the economy that we're seeing right now, um, it seems to me this is just simply a well, a desperate change of subject by the Democrats right now. By the you way, know, just, Liz, you know, just one quick thing, if I may. You yeah. know, I'm in Washington D.C. They have two they have two um, protests and, and parades going on. One one for gun control and one for gay pride in the same afternoon. <laughs> Good Fun. luck on that. Good luck <laughs> on that. You know, Liz, I attended an awful lot of Oval Office meetings in my three-year term. I mean, I was in there a lot. I never saw any pride boys in the Oval Office. Mm. I mean, I I never saw any of these crazies in the Oval Office. Now, I know they're out there, and I know they're mischievous, and they did bad things. But, again, um, this conspiracy stuff is kind of driving me crazy. Well, and and I think some commentators actually – talked about that in the aftermath of these hearings that we didn't watch, uh, that actually they, the Democrats have failed to connect the dots yeah. between the people who actually instigated the riots, which are the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers. You know, I don't know about you guys. I've never even heard of these people until recently. <laughs> Me neither. Uh, Me neither. And, 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 you know, it's like the QAnon thing. I mean, they create these sort of bogeymen. And look, I, I'm obviously they're out there, and, and they've, got, they've arrested 800 people for various charges and these guys these proud boys or whatever they're called uh have been charged with sedition and whatever but i don't think they can link it back to donald trump i could be wrong uh am i crazy was rachel maddow actually talking about how donald trump had a rally yes but it was quite some distance from the capitol and he really didn't i mean was she actually you know creating space here between mm. that rally and what went on at the Capitol, it, it sounded like it. it's on Twitter. I mean, if, if she doesn't see a connection, holy crow, I, I don't I, think there is one. You know what? I I missed that. Maybe I should invite her on the show. I, I missed that. <laughs> well, it, it just may be they took a bit of her presentation, and it's not a fair reflection of what she thinks, but it did seem like that. And I think she's right. I mean, I don't, I don't and honestly, I don't know whether that's what she was saying in its entirety, because guess what? Uh, there's a lot of fake news on Twitter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Can I just add one thing to this discussion? I mean, look, there were some real bad actors on on, um, on January 6th, but I would say about 96 percent of the people who were out protesting were peaceful, and they were, um, you know, we had actually people staying at our home who had actually traveled from Pennsylvania. They were just good, uh, you know, great Americans, and you know, cared about. Our country, and they thought there was a lot of fraud in the election, and and they you know wanted to protest, and that's the right. So this I, the reason I just bring that up is this arrest of this Michigan um, Senate oh, candidate really? for just yeah. being at the rally is outrageous. It really it's 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 frightening. 
It's, so these, it's, it's very exciting. These, you, the, don't these guys, you wonder, Steve, if they had spent the, the time that they have spent reviewing 100,000 documents, interviewing 1,000 people, if, what, what if Congress had spent that time really proving to the American people, looking into every election right. fraud assertion and making it absolutely clear to the country there was no election fraud, have real bipartisan investigation out of Congress so that – Trump could no longer talk about it. All the people who are Republicans could stop talking about it. I think Biden made a huge mistake when he took office. He should have said, we are going to investigate this. I don't want to be considered an illegitimate president by a third of the country or whatever it is. I think they really could have done something noble Mm -hmm. and important then, but they never wanted to do that. And I think that's a sad thing. Steve, well, these except, people. I mean, look, except except for the fact that there was election fraud. Now, whether or not that election fraud, you know, would have changed the outcome, yeah. I don't know. But but I do think there was a lot of uh, a lot of hanky panky going on. Well, with, there was a lot uh, of pre-election fraud. See, yeah, that's the exactly, thing. Pre-election exactly. fraud. Yes, yes. yes. So th- I just want to clarify. My, my friend John Fun likes to say they stole it fair and square. So those people stayed at your home and then they went to the rally, you know, and it was a really interesting thing because I remember talking to these folks and and they, you know, packed into a bus and they were sleeping in our basement. There were about seven or eight of them. They were great people. And I remember Mm. talking to them the night before. And I said, oh, yeah. And, and I said, yeah, it's really sad. Trump's, you know, leaving off. And they could say stuff like, oh, no, he's not leaving. You know, I'm like, what? (laughs) You know, there was this kind of idea that this wasn't, you know, that that there was going to there was uh, some way that, you know, that Trump was going to be able to hold. Uh, you know, they weren't seditious. They were just, you know, they didn't want to see Trump um, leave. And, uh, you know, that that thought was planned. And I, look, I think Trump is somewhat culpable for kind of leading these people on and thinking that somehow they were going to be able to change the election outcome. Mm-hmm. But that that's that's my own take on it. Well, his speech. You know, his speech at that rally was way too hot. There's no question it about was. that. Yeah. But it's also true, and DeRoy Murdoch has written about this, that weeks before, he requested 20,000 National Guardsmen. Yes. And it was turned down by the mayor of Washington and by the Speaker of the House. I mean, you, you can't pin the violence on him. I, I mean, I think that, that these connections that they're trying to make the conspiracy connections, I think, don't hold any water. He was too hot, and the whole episode is most regrettable. Don't get me wrong, yes. but I, I don't think you can pin any of that going into the Capitol, bre- breaching the Capitol on him. I mean, he that was not his intent. Uh, and and the fact that they left the Capitol unguarded, Larry, I think that's something that people on the right are, again, why didn't they have an actual bipartisan committee? Why don't they have some Trump supporters on that committee so that, you know, people would have some confidence in it? Having Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, they, you know, nobody has any confidence that this was a right, fair-minded right. investigation. Well, this is the Liz Cheney Employment Committee. Yeah, she has a post, post-House member employment committee. That's the way I look at that, yeah. trying to get herself a job. But then again, you got uh, somebody who was caught uh, who wanted to murder Brett Kavanaugh, and at the same time, Nancy Pelosi is still blocking uh, the uh, bill to enhance the security for the Supreme Court justices. And they got people following, uh, what's her name, uh, uh, Coney, whatever Amy Coney Barrett. 
Yeah, I mean, tracking down what schools her kids go to and what church she goes to. And no one's making a fuss about that. Joe Biden hasn't said a word about that, defending Coney Barrett, defending uh, defending Kavanaugh. I mean, that's a part of this insanity. I mean, this guy's one to murder. But they should, you know, first of all, even even picketing, marching, demonstrating outside of Supreme Court Justice House is against the law. Yeah. So why aren't they why aren't they arresting 800 people who are doing that? Well, why isn't why isn't Joe Biden speaking out about this? Right, he hasn't said a word. Where, where are the, where's the Democratic leadership denouncing this? It's really we're living a weird era right now, where uh, you know all they talk about, oh, we can't have gun violence, and, and this, this person has a gun, he wants to shoot a Supreme Court nominee, yeah. and and none of the Democrats have even spoken about it. All well, right, I think there's just such a double standard. It just that's just where we are. That's right. That's right. Let's take a break. Uh, go on to some other things. Um, my favorite Treasury Secretary yelling up on the Hill. Uh, hostage video yelling. And she's pushing Yellen's FY 2023 budget, which is chock full of spending and taxing, which is most remarkable. We're here with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and uh, syndicated columnist, Steve Moore, Freedom Works Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and the author of Gubzilla. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow here. We got Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist. We got Steve Moore, Freedom Works, and Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Um, kids, you know, didn't get much play, but Jenny Ellen was up on the Hill this past week defending Biden's 2023 budget, which is Build Back Better. The last estimate by the CBO was $5 trillion in spending and the tax hikes, okay? The corporate tax hikes, the individual tax hikes, the wealth confiscation tax hike, and the international corporate tax hikes. She's up there giving us more of the same while the CPI comes in hotter than ever, okay? Steve Moore, I don't get this, and I'm incredulous to me that they can be doing this. Now, this is the same Janet Yellen who was, you know, going on her apology tour. It looked like a hostage video the way she played it. And yet it's it's more of the same, more of the same. No reset, no nothing. Yeah, you know, when uh, Trump announced his top cabinet officials and the, his top advisors, I, you know, that was, what, a year and a half ago. The one person I was, you know, had some confidence in was Janet Yellen. I mean, she was Fed chief. She's got the background to be the Treasury secretary. I've always thought she was level-headed, and I've been extraordinarily disappointed with her. I mean, she's just drunk the Kool-Aid of the progressive left in a way that I'm I'm just still shocked by. And so um, she was supposed to be the one who was the adult in the room, and, and she hasn't been. I mean, she, so she's now spouting all of the left-wing progressive ideas, everything from global taxation to raising the corporate tax and on and on. And she's also an expert on um, climate change. I don't know if you guys know that. And so anyway, the, um, the point I'm making is that w- when she went south on us, then there was nobody left to, to come up with any good ideas in this, in this White House. And so uh, you're right. She gave, gave a speech. I mean, uh, uh, in her testimony, it was all basically build back better, higher tax rates in American companies, all of the things. And, and I, I think that there's a connection here, Larry, 
between the collapse of the stock market and the fact that there's nobody talking about any rational economic ideas. You know, in other words, it's not too late to start to turn things around, right? But there's no sense that they're going to do that. And that's why I think there's just a complete collapse in confidence. Consumer confidence is as low as it's ever been. Small business confidence is as low as it's ever been, and on and on and on. Well, Liz, Build Back Better is going to cut the inflation rate. That's the last I heard. That's what, that's what we keep hearing, and not even a fourth grader un- believes that. I mean, nobody believes that. I, mean, I think I honestly think more than any other single canard uh, issued from this president, this is the one that has brought him down because nobody in the entire world thinks that spending another three to five trillion, which is what the legitimate number for Build Back Better was, is going to help uh, inflation, which was spurred by spending an extra $2 trillion. So it's complete nonsense. Everybody knows it's nonsense. Um, I just went through his speech uh, given out at Long Beach, and it's just a remarkable document um, or speech in that almost everything he says is untrue. I mean, he talks about how you know, consumers have less debt than they've had before. That's just not true. It's completely not true. You know, wait, they're moving on to better jobs and better wages. Well, real wages were down 3% over the past year. It it doesn't really matter what you look at. It's all a fantasy world. And I, I mean, I just keep wondering who, who's feeding him this information and this material that is so blatantly false, uh, including again, that ridiculous claim about, build back better. And by the way, I actually did look at those 42 economists, Nobel laureates or Nobel whatevers that he keeps citing. And they, a lot of them have backtracked because someone actually went and asked them, do you really think this is right? And they said, well, that's not really what we said. I mean, or no, that's not quite what I meant. There is no support for this nonsense. And the sooner that Biden moves away from it, uh, the better. But he doesn't really have any place to land. I think that's his big problem. And Steve, in this, um, you heard Biden on Thursday and again on Friday, and I haven't seen this Long Beach speech, but I'm sure it's the same. It's an attack on business. Yep. Constant attack on business, Steve. And besides the Federal Trade Commission and the SEC and the Federal Reserve and ESG, there's no let up in the attack blaming business for all that ails us. This is a very bad thing in America. Um, it is. It's, a, it's an extraordinarily anti-business agenda. And I wanted to just add one thing to what um, Liz was just saying, that the uh, I'm actually testifying before the House Budget Committee on yeah. Tuesday. And I got, uh, I got out of you're that I got out of that <laughs> I think one. That, no. I think, uh, yeah, I think they passed, passed that on to <laughs> me. But here's the reason I bring that up is because, the theme – this is the Democrats. They run the House of Representatives. The theme of this, um, of this hearing – I'm not making this up – is how the American Rescue Plan um, saved the economy and saved lives. And, mm. and I think my opening statement is going to be, really? Highest inflation rate you know, in 40 years, and the economy seems to be in a state of collapse, and you're going to take a victory lap right now? I mean, Liz, you can't make this stuff up. No, I, I'm, that's just so offensive. I mean, when, when Biden took office and when this bill was passed, the economy was going at over 6%, and we were heading even yeah. then – 
for, yeah. I think, a tightness in the job market, escalating prices, et cetera. And then they just ladled this thing on. And that's when people like Larry Summers just said, whoa. And, and apparently even Janet Yellen said this could be too much. I mean, she, did, she denies it now, but that rings true to me. I, I'm sure she's not stupid, and, and it was a stupid thing to do. But this attack on business, this yep. is such a throwback. I yep. mean, America yep. is business, okay? <laughs> You've got 160 million people, more or less, who work in business. And I, these things never work politically. It's yep. just, it's, it's just, it's just this far left stuff, Steve. We've seen this before. You get it periodically, then it goes away. But we're in one of those periods where you have the whole of Washington, the White House, the Senate, and the House blaming business for everything. And it's just, it, it, it won't work. Liz is right. The cavalry's coming, and it's going to be a big change come uh, November. But I think it's very unhealthy for the country. It's very unhealthy for the culture. Well, I've said it before. I'll say it again, quoting my one of my great mentors, Dick Army, that liberals love jobs and they hate employers. You mm-hmm. know, and that is just mm-hmm. so true. And you can't have you can't have jobs without businesses. And so, um, you know, I was thinking when you were just talking, Larry, about okay, who's responsible for the bad economy? Okay, it's the oil companies, it's the drug companies, it's the meat producers, it's the poultry industry. I mean, all of a sudden, everybody, all these companies got greedy. Did you notice that? Just just when Biden came into office, so. He's passing on the blame. And, and what really frightens me, so their solution is back to the 1970s, price controls. Yeah. That's, what the, that's where they're headed. So I don't uh, – in the Long Beach speech, just – a new group uh, has emerged as the new bogeyman, and that's shipping companies, of oh. which there are nine, and uh, mostly foreign-owned, foreign flags, I guess – uh, and Biden wants to take them on. He's introducing legislation to control pricing, I think, is what he's trying to yep, do. Yep, to I your agree. point, Steve, so all these ships are going to turn right around and go someplace else in the world uh, with the goods that they're carrying. By the way, I just want to raise two things. You mentioned, Steve, uh, the collapse in consumer sentiment. I don't know that listeners have any idea how extraordinary this collapse right. in consumer sentiment yeah. is. 58 to 50, when all the economists were talking 58.5 or whatever. This is the lowest ever recorded. And when you consider the job market is indeed pretty good right now, people can get work, this is an unbelievable collapse. To Larry, to your point, it's because people have zero confidence in this White House. I really mm-hmm. think that's, that's where it comes from. And Steve, um, as you've said You've got Republicans joining this, wanting to dismantle the technology industry. Mm. Yep. And that's a terrible idea. I mean, the technology industry, you know, and I don't like their politics, Larry. I know you and Liz don't either. But, you know, these are industries that have created trillions of dollars of wealth, trillions of dollars of consumer welfare. You know, I always marvel at Google. You know, I can get any information I want in 12 seconds and it costs me nothing. So, uh, yeah, we've got to get Republicans away from this idea that industry, uh, you know, just because you're successful. I mean, being successful and building a better mousetrap is what the free enterprise system is all about. Yes. Thank you, kids. Appreciate it very much. Liz Peake and Steve Moore, you're both terrific. Folks, I'm Kudlow. We'll be back next weekend.
Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024.